0: Welcome to the Fly Fishing Show, episode number 17.
1: Welcome to the Wet
0: Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more how's it going everyone thanks for stopping by the fly fishing show in today's episode i interview scott baker mcgarva one of the most experienced steelhead fishermen in bc we talk about the bc lottery system hero casting and a hookless fishery concept scott describes fly change-itis getting charged by bears riffle hitching bull trout and how to fish the dean river the right way stay till the end in this one as scott breaks out some huge bc steelhead tips How's it going, Scott? Good, Dave. How are you? Good. Uh, yeah, so I'm glad you were able to take a little time here and come on and chat. I've got some good questions, uh, you know, a couple of rivers that uh, I hear a lot about, and some of them I've fished and some of them I haven't, but the, the dean is one, so I'm hoping we can dig in to some of this information and, and see if you can answer a few of these questions.
2: Sure. No, My
0: pleasure. All right. Um, so yeah, I I know uh, we were just chatting a little bit ago here, um, as far as the rivers you focus on and and the Dean river is one that you have quite a bit of knowledge. Maybe you can tell us, you know, before we jump fully into the Dean where, how you got into fly fishing and steelhead and how you, I mean, you're, you've done a lot of everything right in the industry. How'd you get to where you're at?
2: Um, well it, it started off. Yeah. Fishing. You know, I like a lot of guys, you know, I had a dad that loved to fish. I had a grandfather that loved to fish. Uh, grandfathers on grandfathers and um, so I was you know dragged off the lake at a pretty young age Um, you know first started dragging flies around when I was four or five and I think my dad had me fly casting by around you know 10 or 12 and then it grew from there Uh, I grew up in basically downtown Vancouver uh, where my parents moved after university and you know so I could take a bus over to the north shore of uh, Vancouver and there was three rivers over there that you could bus to and Crawl around and bus home from, and you know I'd be in downtown Vancouver with my waders on and my fly rod and trekking back and forth, and and so I did that for you know my early teens until I was able to get a car and spread my wings and start you know venturing,
1: hmm.
2: you know wherever I could get to. Um, my father, <clears throat> my parents had split up at a, at a fairly young age, and my father had uh, moved to Alberta. He'd moved all over. But he always, you know, stayed pretty close. My, my parents had a good relationship, even though they went separate directions. And uh, my father settled in Alberta in Calgary. And so I, I started to visit him a lot, you know, in the summer months and fishing the Bow River. Mm. So the Bow River was the first real trout stream that I encountered, which wasn't a bad place to start. And, uh, you know, I'd always fish lakes or fish steelhead and rivers. And so to go to a river that's pretty big, full of trout, And this would have been in, you know, the mid eighties. It was, it was awesome. And so I I started to really think, Oh, what am I going to do after high school? And so I went and became a bow river trout fishing guide. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of the middle generation there. You know, I think we're now under the fourth or fifth generation, but you know, I worked for outfitters that had all started at the original bow river company. And then they'd all sort of splintered off to do their own thing. And so I worked for a few shops and did that. And in the winter months came back to Vancouver and, worked in the ski business and just went fishing a lot. And, uh, and as that continued on, uh, I remember one, what happened, the real trigger was one year we had a, a really poor snow season and the ski shop I was working at, it wasn't working out for, you know, to come there for the winter. And I went down to the local tackle shop that I used to frequent and I kind of dropped a resume off. And a month later they phoned me up hmm. and said, we need a guy. Uh, there was a bit of a musical chairs of fishing, uh, shop employees in in Vancouver at the time moving around. And I, I filled a void and I, I put in 12 years there, I think, before I decided that I needed to have my own store and and moved on. And in those 12 years, you know, you, you learn a lot, you teach a lot, you hear a lot. I mean, people love to tell the fishing tackle shop guy, their secret spot. And not that I would tell anybody else, but I had, my brain was like a catalog and I would just absorb what I'd hear, and then back in those days there was no internet, so I just read everything I could possibly read, and and I had an income, and so I had a car, a truck, and I just went fishing and fishing and fishing, and and um, and then after my retail years, I kind of went back to guiding as a as a fallback, just to get clear my head, and uh, and at that time there was some good guiding opportunities available, and I, I basically worked into seasonally steelhead guiding for three months a year, and was able to take the winter off and. Go ski my face off in Whistler, or hmm. you know, do other things, and and it was the life of Riley for quite a while, and then well, it still is, but I mean, hmm. at the time, it was, you know, that's really what I did, and and uh, when I was in high school, uh, we had a teacher there who uh, was part of a well-known fly fishing club that frequented the Dean River, and every September he'd have a slideshow in our little fly fishing club, and we would see all these pictures of what this old boy school had done all summer. And one of them was they'd go to the Dean. So I saw these pictures of these big chrome bar steelhead in, you know, the middle of August, bright, sunny skies. And, you know, I, I got to go there. And, um, uh, I met a guy who came into my shop who actually went to a trip to Christmas Island with him. And he says, you know, I got a I got a cabin on the Dean, uh, my first reaction was, well, oh God, how hard is it to go to the Dean and fish? I want to go there and camp and catch fish and stuff. And he goes, well, why would you do that? Just come stay at my cabin. So that started, you know, a decade of going to Dana's cabin. Oh, wow. And uh, then this is Dana Proddy, as opposed to Dana Stern. There's kind of oh, two yeah. Danas in, yep. in the fly fishing business in, in, in BC. And Dana Praddy and I, we went there, we rafted it, we stayed at his cabin, we did a bunch of stuff. And so we saw all the highs and lows of the Dean. And, uh, and then when my retail career kind of subsided, I, some doors opened to to put me on the Bulkley in the fall and the Dean in the summer. And then the Bulkley operation started working, uh, in the winter months in Haida Gwaii. And I went and did that. And and so kind of one door opened after another, after another, Mm -hmm. um, until, uh, I decided life wasn't complete enough without children and suddenly have a, have a little boy and, um, I'm now, you know, slowly been weaning myself off, uh, the guiding side of things and getting more into, uh, you know, retail manufacturer representatives for fly fishing brands. And, uh, and that's where I am today.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. It seems like from the guests that I've talked to, you know, a few of them have gone the same route as you. It seems like you, you get into it, you got the, the guiding, you know, going full, full bore then eventually I think, um, oh, I who was it, um. Uh, Oh, I think it was Tom Larimer who said in, uh, you know, one of the past episodes, he mentioned that, you know, he had to get a big boy job and, uh, <laughs> and he got, you know, now he's working for uh, G Loomis, you know, G. Do, Loomis, yeah. doing the same. So is that yeah. kind of the, 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 feeling out there that you kind of, the guiding is, you know, and, he, and all that stuff is kind of the fun before the, the real stuff.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, uh, funny, yeah, I just talking Tom with Tom with. Last week about you know business and stuff, and yet you know we have this bond, and like a lot of us do in the industry, because you're all lifers. You know we're yeah. not in this business to make a lot of money. I mean, my parents were successful architects. If I liked urban design, I probably could have segued into a great career in urban design, <laughs>
1: um,
2: but I didn't want to do that. And my parents, being creative types, were very much like, do what you're good at. Do what you're good at. It might not seem like you know I had the the girlfriend whose dad was like, oh, he's a fishing guide. What good is he, yeah. right? And, <laughs> uh, you know, he needs to be a doctor or somebody, you know. Uh-huh. And I I just did what I was good at and did what I was good at. And and in, in the early days, I was quite well paid for it. And that was really one reason I, I segued into my own business. Well, not to get well paid, but it was like, well, if I'm going to make, you know, average money, at least I want to call the shots. Yeah. And, uh, and then guiding later, you know, was because, again, it was something I knew I was good at. And I just wasn't interested after retail of going into another field and having to be at the bottom of the totem, you know, the proverbial totem pole and learn uh, something else. Even though I had the application, I'd been in retail management, I'd been in inventory management. I mean, I could have segued into lots of things that were similar, but I just went back to what I knew, which was, you know, fishing and teaching people and mm-hmm. and being on the water and being outside. <laughs> and so, it and 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 I meet all these guys, you know, Larimer, uh, is a whole raft of them. They're all the same. You know, you got together and get some beer flowing and it all comes out. They all had very similar mm-hmm. passions and, and that's what drives their motivation. And even in the tackle business where they're all competitors, you know, in the retail front, as soon as, as soon as you take your retail hat off, everybody, you know, they, we all support each other because we know it's a small business and we're all here for the same thing. And, uh, and that's healthy fisheries and healthy fish and healthy environment and, and, if that's your goal, then you're going to get along just fine with me and, and most everybody else I've met yeah. in this business. So, <clears throat> yeah. the guys that try to make a buck out of this are, are usually not around very long.
0: No, no, that's that's the take home message. You got to have that passion, otherwise, you're you're not going to make it long.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It always astounds me when people are trying to wring a dollar out of a of a passion business. It, Yep. I just don't, I just don't get their mental space, but yeah. there's people out there. Right? Yeah. I had a part, I had a partner that was that way and it huh. was, <laughs> that's, that's why he's not my partner. Anymore, yeah. But that's, that's just, some people are like that. They got to see everything as a buck. And so I'm glad that I'm
0: not doing that. Yeah, definitely. So how, how was that with the the fly shop? I mean, you said you had that for a dozen years. How, how did that whole process kind of from, well, uh,
2: well, I worked I worked in a, I worked in a big tackle shop for a dozen years and then I went and had my own shop for about three, um, it was a short and sweet. It actually worked really well. We we really kind of set the bar in Vancouver. Like to think about the way a shop looked. We really built a very cool looking store. You know, I wanted to have a fly shop like the shops I'd seen when I used to travel to Montana. You know, hard like a a plank floor and, mm-hmm. and kind of a an old an old fishing cabin look inside and and different lighting. I didn't want linoleum and fluorescent lights and and that kind of pegboard kind of look and. And I think we did a really good job. And a good friend of mine, you know, took the momentum I had and, and opened a store in the same location in Vancouver uh, with the same idea to just make a store that you want to go to work at every day. Uh, and we were a big dealer. We sold all the top brands. We did very well. And, and we had a very successful business going. And it was really a shame that I had a partner that, you know, viewed his, you know, his money and his ego as way more important no. than a successful business. And it killed it. And yep. and that, to this day, people say, God, you guys were great. What was wrong? I go, Well, it wasn't about the business side, it was mm-hmm. about personalities. That's and um, and it killed it. And yeah, maybe it was a blessing for me in the end, because one thing I did learn about retail is you are slave to your store. People people want to talk to you. And if you don't nurture your staff to really be just like you in a few years' time, you could never get away from the thing without it going in the in the ground because you're everything. And that was the one thing about the business that I didn't like was that, you know, it's hard to get young guys nurtured. They're not really invested uh, because it's just a job, even though they're fishing. You know, it's like they want to get a bunch of cheap fishing gear for a few years and they move on. And unless you have good partners that want to share their load so you can you can have a life, uh, it becomes a real tough game. And uh, the stores, I think, that are successful have that in the stores that come and go are just, you know, they're missing that element. So, um, you know, and I liked it and I learned a lot from it, but it was basically, it was my university education as far as money and money lost. It was, you know, that's the way I view it. Mm. I could have gone to school and spent a hundred grand or I could have ran a fly fishing business for, you know, three, four years. And, and that was really my take off of it. Yeah. And I met a lot of people, you know, it really helps my rep side. I've been a retailer. I've been a wholesaler. I mean, I've been all those people. So I go to a store, I know what it's like to be a retailer. I don't want to load you up with crap you don't need no. i want you to sell i want it to be a partnership i don't want to just be a salesman that you know sells you and leaves and and I, I think a lot of my customers really appreciate that or at least they tell me they appreciate that you know and that's something that is an advantage and so i view the the, the shop life as as a, a good asset mm-hmm. that i had in the past mm-hmm. and uh, you know going forward it's it's uh Fly shop business is a tough go, but there's lots of guys doing a good job. You know, Mm -hmm. you just got to reorganize your focus on what, what it's like going forward. Not what it was 10 years ago. And sure. I think you think it'd be fine.
0: Nice. Nice. Cool. Well, that gives us a, a good glimpse of uh, your history. Maybe we can jump into a few uh, tips. I always like to hear, you know, you've done a lot of fishing on, it sounds like a multiple of some of the biggest steelhead rivers, you know, out there. Woody, do you have a, like a tip or two for, you know, somebody that's getting into it, helping get into a fish?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I often think, well, a couple things, you know, you could have a handful, um, but I think, you know, the key things is, is to really be observant. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they run into the water, they don't look at the water, um, you know, to be observant, step in lightly, you know, ankle deep, and 20 feet. I caught, we catch mm. so many steelhead 30 feet from shore, you know, it's unbelievable. And, and you know, one of my mentors in steelheading or a guy who I really watched uh, was uh, now passed away, Jerry Wintle, mm. and he was a Canadian iconic steelheader who was notorious for coming behind you and catching fish. And I watched him fish. He wouldn't wade very deep. He would very deaf fisherman. He'd just cover water and he would not fish very far out. He wouldn't wade way out there. No hero casting. <laughs> his flies were your flies because he purloined them from your box and his leaders were ratty and his, you know, his tackle was old <laughs> and he caught fish behind everybody just because he, he covered water and he, he watched the water and he observed the water. You know, he would notice a little nuance in the current. He would notice things. And, um, and he was the first guy. The other guy I watched on the Thompson River was Harry Lemire.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, another great steelheader. And at the time when everybody in the Thompson had spay rods and was knee-deep throwing 130-foot casts with long belly lines, Harry Lemire was ankle-deep with a single-hander casting 50 feet mm-hmm. and catching fish. You know, he picked pick his spots, of course. Yeah. But he really showed the the observation, you know, and 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 then the fun. I mean— he didn't kill himself to catch fish and he fished bankers hours Harry uh, and and Jerry was the same way show up at nine fish till three he wasn't standing in the dark right um so observation uh cover your water of course don't get wrapped up in your fly like I love fly tying I love classic flies I love all that stuff but you could have a bright fly dark fly small fly big fly and cover 90% of your paces, right as far as what do you need? I mean, let's look at an old fly fishing book. You know, the, the first Trey Coombs Fly Fishing mm-hmm. for Steelhead book. The flies are all tied with, you know, pipe cleaner chenille bodies and calf tail wings. <laughs> they got no movement in the water. Yes, there was lots of fish to catch, but they caught them. You know, and now flies are spectacular. But the thought of the fly difference to catch the fish, you know, it, it it's just, I think people get too wrapped up. I do enjoy beautiful flies and i think you fish a nice fly confidently and you'll fish it longer but when you get fly change itis when yep. you haven't caught a fish in an hour you, <laughs> you're missing the you're missing the point and we get that i mean oh, yeah. i've done it everybody does it but people start getting on particularly when you're guiding you know well i gotta change my fly maybe they want a purple one you know <laughs> it's like yeah you know i think you just need to keep showing your fly to more potential fish and you know at the end of the day you'll you'll sit back in the lodge and talk to their boys and find out that if it was a good day on the water, typically everybody had a pretty good day fishing a whole gamut of different things. Mm -hmm. rarely does one guy stand out as, you know, crushing them when everybody else got blanked because of his fly. I mean, more it's his ability, his, you know, his ability to cover water or read water. And, and, uh, you know, and I always tell people, you know, well, what do you want to do? Well then do that. You know, if it seems like it fits the bill, you know, I won't tell you to fish a dry fly in, you know, in, in dirty water, but if it looks like it's worthy, fish that. That's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, don't think that you need to put on 10 feet of a T-14 and on a giant intruder in the middle of September on the Bulkley. Why would you do that? You can do that all winter, you know, and, and, and sometimes you get people into that mental space. At least I find that people, oh yeah, you're right. You know, that was fun. I got to fish on a dry fly. That was a big deal. They don't care it was six pounds. You know, um, and then you see the guy at the boat launch beating his chest over his 15 fish on a wet fly, and it, it well, whatever <laughs> floats your boat. But yeah. who had more fun today? Who was enjoying their day and wasn't as wrapped up in having to to you know meet some standard that they set on themselves for mm-hmm. success? So
1: yeah,
2: um, so I mean that's the way I look at it. You know, cover your water, read your water, don't wade in too far, fish the beach. Yep. those are all good summer run tactics. Um, winter runs, a little different creature because of the, the nature of the environment, the temperature, and the water. But, you know, it, it, you know the only winter run guiding I really know well, the fish also sit right on the beach. Hmm. And they're shallow. And largely it's because they're predator-driven, you know, seals chasing them around, or otters. Oh, yeah. We catch a lot of fish in shallow, roughly water in the dead of winter. Uh, where we are, we don't have the pressure up in BC the way in the U.S. where you have a lot of drift boaters and other anglers change the dynamic of the fish but uh you know i don't put on more than five feet of t14 almost ever in the winter yeah and yet you know now to search some rivers we have to i get that but just as far as you know what i like to do and what we do and in, um, in our winter fisheries
1: hmm.
0: that's cool that's uh that's definitely the uh, the message I keep hearing when I, as I talk to people, I was just uh, actually just interviewed uh, John Shuey, the episode before uh, episode before this episode sixteen, and he had a great story about John Ben, you know, he was talking about the history of steelhead fly fishing and how it mm-hmm. all be- it all began with this guy it was John Ben, who basically everybody forgot about. And including yeah. some of the fly patterns. And so John or, uh, so Shuey took out the Parmesan, uh, bell,
1: bell. Yeah. yeah.
0: So all these fly patterns that nobody ever heard of and he fished it for a month straight and, and caught, you know, a bunch of fish, you know? So it's, okay. Oh. It, just, it just straight to the point that it really doesn't matter.
2: Totally. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, I look, there's some guys on the, on the web right now that are, you know, classic tying a lot of classic flies and fishing and flies in it. They tie in hand. Because they've just put it to, hey, this is how I want to do it. And when I get one, I got what I needed. They don't care what everybody else thinks, right? Yeah. And uh, and I that chewy thing, you know, I lo- love his flies, you know, mm-hmm. and reading his stuff. And, you know, it's the same thing. You know, what, what do you really need? What do the fish think it is? When I used to gear fish, we caught them on a piece of pink, peach yarn. <laughs> you know, pinky, like I caught more fish on yarn balls and yarn flies and then later big rubber pink worms and you name it. Yeah you know to to admit to and um and so now anglers get to the water and what are you going to use and in the winter time what are you prepared to lose because if you are fishing like you need to you know and bottom here and there and, and fishing shallow and you're going to lose a few flies and what mm-hmm. are you prepared to lose so that's another thing and the summer yeah. may be different i was always a big friend of mine put me on the lady caroline program many oh, yeah. years ago and the doc spratley was always a popular uh thompson river fly my My grandfather's box of Thompsoner flies were all these buggy-looking things, Hmm. and so I I went to that just because it was cool, you know. I knew a giant pink intruder might catch more, but I just sort of fished what cast nice, you know. You don't cast big flies on long bellies a long way, but you also don't cast big flies well on light, you know, spare rods and floating lines very well. So, you know, I kind of fished what I could fish well. So, you know, what John's saying, it makes total sense. You know, Parmachine Bell, that's great. Silver Doctors, you know, all that cool stuff.
0: Yeah, that is pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, maybe we can jump in. Do you want to talk a little bit uh, about the Dean, maybe specifically? Just talk about how if somebody was going to go up there. sounds like I've never fished it, but it sounds like maybe it's a a little bit of a challenge uh, putting the whole thing together. But could you talk about just how you get into fish up there?
2: Well, the the Dean's, you know, it's had a lot of, it's got a very long history and it's had, you know, it's had its ups and downs like any fishery. It's it took a bit of a beating for fish in the in the mid you know 96 97 era you know and it kind of got forgotten about. I remember a doom and gloom article about the Dean when I got up there to guide. Now that was well after I'd been fishing it for years and years. I missed a few years of fishing for a variety of reasons. And when I got up there to guide, a good friend of mine, uh, Kateri Clay, who worked at the upper camp. Said to me, hey, you know, it's not like the old days. It's it's a it's been tough sledding last year, <laughs> and that was 2010. And then 2010 was lights out. Yeah, just we hit a cycle, right? And then mm-hmm. we had some really bad floods in 2010, 2011. You know, which then word got out, and by the time people started showing up there again in 2013, 2014, it was getting crowded. Fishing went in the tank for a variety of reasons: the floods, uh, there was uh, ocean survival change, there was uh, huge pink salmon run in those years. And there was a lot of commercial interception. It was just a lot of factors. So like all rivers, they go up and they go down. But the thing about the Dean is when you're there and you're looking around and these mountains rise, you know, six, 7,000 feet from your feet right up. It's a very steep Mm. Valley, a lot of rock, you know, big glacial river that, that moves, changes a lot with every flood. And, and then you have these incredibly hot grabby fish and you're fishing, you know, in a t-shirt with your waders rolled down because it's, uh, you know, 90 degrees out, you know, it really, it really is a different scene than most people are used to for steelhead. So it's got a combination of the environment and of course the fish, the fish aren't, you know, super hard to catch. If they're there, they bite, you know, and
1: Hmm.
2: you know, that, that rule of, you know, bright fly, dark fly, big fly, small fly, based on, you know, the light of day and the color of the water you know, covered 90% of the bases. And then if you wanted to fish dry flies, yeah, you had two. You had a, a bigger one that might move a fish and you maybe have a, a closer that would catch it. Mm. So from a fishing perspective, it wasn't, it's not terribly hard. The problem with the Dean now is getting in there, logistics. There's no airline service servicing it at all. Mm. The guy in Bella Coola pulled out uh, for legal legal reasons to do with permitting and stuff. You can only get in there by heli or you can get in there by one of the guys who boats in oh wow! and then if you boat in, then you got to get up river, you know, and then you got to try to get someone to get you a lift up river or you got to hump stuff up there on your back, which is hard. Hmm. So it's been good for the helicopter business, um, cause they'll just drop you in there, but it's, it's now, um, getting spendy, you know, now you have to, you're not doing it on a budget, you know, a few couple of guys going in for a week is going to cost you, you know, pushing four grand Canadian for heli time and Uh, plus your your groceries and food and 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 stuff Um, so that's that's something that people have to understand and the last thing you have to understand is the floods changed the river quite a bit and for a while the upper river lost a lot of really good water you got two big guide outfitters up there that got clients and they're working the water so a lot of people started to cluster around the lower river above the falls because a that's where the guides don't go in august and B, that's where there was some fish holding because there was water there for them. But it really killed the experience, you know, and in m- my opinion now is they've they got to consider changing some of the, the lottery rules on the Dean to distribu- the, distribute the anglers differently. Um, you're getting a lot of people piling in the bottom. You're getting a lot of people trying to, to camp out on water. And it's really ruining yeah. the experience, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, you can still go upriver and float and have a great experience. But if it gets in your head that you got to be down by the falls because that's where the fish are at, you become one of those guys rushing to get there, and then all of a sudden you come away going, "Oh God, there was ten campers there, and there's yep. people everywhere, and that wasn't what I was expecting." And and you have you know uh, the guides from the lower river that have access to the upper, even though they're largely walking in, but there's always that group, you know, four rods a day, and so it's changed in the last few years, and I think you know people I know who go there that have a good time flying to the upper they raft it for a week yeah they fish their water they move they fish their water um those are the guys that sort of come away saying yeah we had a great time yeah we didn't catch you know hundreds but we we caught some nice fish um we didn't compete with people you know we see the guides but they leave you alone
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh the guys that kind of fly into the lower river and camp out and and try to get in the into that and fight the people that are there already you come away going oh man it was kind of disappointing there was you know 10 other campers there and you know I, I don't know what they expected you know so yeah um you know and that's um, that's just <laughs> that's just what you know the way it's been so i mean don't need to you know, doom and gloom it the fishing was still like last year fishing was really good
1: okay uh,
2: the year before huh. there was you know there was good numbers of fish i still encourage people to go but i i yeah. would tell anybody that do it the right way you know fly in the upper raft it down see the valley you know the river changes the upper river is much smaller it's clear and then as you get down river it turns more into the dean of you know what you see in the calendars and sure. in, in magazines but see the whole thing and i think you you'll have a you'll have a great trip you know okay um uh, the bears there yeah there's lots of bears but if you're smart about bears they don't bug you yeah. i've never been bothered there by a bear don't ask tom larimer that question <laughs> you know he had a bear come charging out at him but you know, in analysis after it was because there was salmon in the foreground of the where he was waiting. Sure. But I remember him screaming in the radio that there was a bear running towards him. Yes. <laughs> you know, and so you got to understand bears and, and where you are in the bears world. But uh, all yeah. the years we were there, we've we've never seen a, a person harassed by a bear. But you know, people. That's a second question I get asked:
0: What about the damn bears? Oh yeah. No, so bears um, are. Your bears They're like, awesome. like, yeah, like any, any wild animal, just give them some room and you'll probably be all right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Hang your food up, you know, keep yeah. a clean camp. You know, that's, that's all. You do that. You don't have any, yeah. any issue, you know? So, um, and then timing, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a July through August, early September,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, fishery. Um, we used to always go the end of August was our float time. And, you know, when we got good conditions, we always had a great time. Yeah. You, you can't control the weather. I had blown out weeks. I had half blown out weeks. But generally if we had good weather, we always we always found fish. Cool. So and you can cooperate with, with the Heli company and sometimes, you know, find out who's coming out and in and co op co op on a chopper. Find out who's where so you don't land somewhere and there's somebody else there. There's oh, okay. some you know, logistical stuff you can figure out.
0: Gotcha. Um, yeah. So it's doable. But so doable. it's doable, it's just and co- it's, costs some money. Costs a little more than uh, a, than a, uh, a Skeena trip.
2: Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and, and for non-resident Canadians, you have to apply to the lottery, which is right around now.
0: And you get your days drawn, and then you go. Is you that just planning. for? Is that just for the dean? That lottery? That's just for the dean. Yeah. yeah. So is that the, the only? only is that the yeah. only uh, Canadian lo- like? That well, sort of no. Lottery?
2: Now they now they got a lottery system set up for some of the trout streams in southeastern BC. Oh wow! Like around around Fernie, some of the smaller waters now have a, a daily booking system that they're trying to operate. And there's talk about trying to apply that to the Skeena because the Skeena is getting a bit crowded. And yeah, you know how do we? How do we control experience? You know, that's the key. You know, you're paying yeah. for classified license. You're paying licensing fees. How do we control giving people a quality experience without
0: leaving anybody out? Exactly. Right? That, that's that's the whole thing. You don't want to get this, you know, the whole thing we're pay to play where only the the rich, you know, people can go do it. I mean, yeah. I think of some of these places like the, you know, down here, you got the Grand Canyon. It's not, not fishing, but these, these rafting trips, you know, I mean. Yeah. And you're putting in for a long time, you know, if you know how to do it, you can probably get in on it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a serious lottery. I'm not sure if you think the Skeena and the, the it sounds like the Dean's kind of already going there. But Well, the Dean's
2: going. And so what happens is people use the Dean as an example of a system that may be applicable elsewhere. And what's funny about the Dean is you can't just go there. So if it didn't have a lottery with the way the he is, you know, when the lottery came out, you used to be able to fly into the Dean on a scheduled flight. There was a weekly scheduled flight into the Dean, if not t- more than once a week. Hmm. You could fly in there, and then there was an old timer there who would give you a ride upriver, and you could camp. And you know, and then when they made it classified, you know, because they, were, they had to control it and they had to keep the other, uh, you know, non-local uh, guide outfitters. Everybody was starting to show up with motherships and helicopters. It was really <laughs> wild west there. But now people go, why do we have a lottery and and regulation on the Dean when it's so hard to get? But rivers like the Copper or the Kispiox or the Bulkley, uh, but particularly Copper Kispiox because they're smaller, mm-hmm. they have a road running right up them, are getting so crowded yeah. that people are complaining that the experience is lost. And maybe we need to control how many people fish. And, and, and you know, it's an ugly subject. There's no right answer. It, it, but it's, it has to be talked about and people are trying to, to figure it out. And so these lottery systems that they've applied elsewhere – You know, people are looking at them pretty hard saying, you know, maybe this will be a better system. And I hate to exclude, you know, you know, my, my brothers from, of the river from the South or from Europe, but let's face it, you know, they're the first to get regulated because they're not residents and then residents, you know, residents uh, outside British Columbia are the second, you know, in license fees, they pay way more. And Mm -hmm. then of course, BC residents will always be a priority and you're never going to get around that. And, uh, and that's the way it should be. And so, You know, trying to to stagger that that program and have it you know be successful, and and I'm in the rep business, so I want yeah yeah I want everybody to enjoy it because when we're fighting government to protect fish, I don't care where you're from, you're there for the fish and you're supporting the fish, and by way of that, you're supporting the economy. We want to include you. We don't want to exclude you. Mm -hmm. You know, and guides know that everybody points the finger at guides wanting it for themselves, but I think that's BS. You know, guides say, hey, we need all the friends we can get when we got to fight the bigger, the bigger monster, which is either commercial interception right. or you know, environmental things. You know, hmm. uh, that's the problem with the fishing community globally is that we can't unite to fight the bigger fight, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, um,
0: but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, definitely some uh, some hard uh, topics there. That you know, lots of work that's yeah. to be done.
2: Yeah, you know, it, and when they did first, like the Dean, I mean, rather the bulkley kispiox system, well, the, Kispyok, the whole Skena, rather, oh, yeah. Um, they implemented this, this weekend rule where the non-residents couldn't fish on weekends. And uh, personally, I didn't agree with it. Hmm. You know, some of us, the guides were exempted, but that's because we have to have economic certainty of our booking our clients. But, you know, that's been on for five years or six years. And when it first came on, you know, a lot of guys were pissed off and didn't come up. Yeah. You know, particularly from the states and i don't blame them but after a couple of years they went man that's still if i still fish monday to friday and chop wood and tie flies on the weekend it's exactly. still better than my option b you know don't feel excluded i don't agree with it but don't don't get your nose out of joint you know no. you, you know, and, and now people are starting to come back and they're realizing we can work around that yep you know and um you know that that whole system you know it's not perfect but they were trying to to do something you know to um uh, you know, to, to pacify the locals who felt that their their home waters are being overrun. And uh, th- that's what they went with. And like I said, I don't know if I agree with it, but it is it is what it is. And I think now people are realizing that, you know, what, whatever, I'll work around that. Yeah. Instead of thinking that it's a discriminatory move,
0: you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, so yeah, so have we talked about, I mean, if you talk about today, you know, your home river something you fish most often, is that one of the rivers we've talked about or do you have another river out there? No,
2: no, well, I live in Squamish, BC, so I'm, you know, halfway between Vancouver and and Whistler Ski Resort. And the Squamish River is a spring run river. There's a couple of tributaries. That's kind of my home water. Uh, you know, I can load up my, my boat and whip down and be out fishing a nice, nice riffle right above the tide within... Mm -hmm. 25 30 minutes um it doesn't have a lot of fish it's a wild run spring um but that's the local thing mm-hmm. we do and uh it's okay it's it's, it's very similar I'm trying to think what it's similar to in the u.s side like
1: hmm.
2: we don't have anywhere near the fish like the skagit or the sock you know in which has been getting a lot of publicity lately with this you know this drive to reopen it for catch and release hmm. which i fully support there's a lot of funny politics i mean the skagit and the Sauk have you know four to six thousand fish coming back in the spring and they're closed for conservation and the, my friends are down there look to me and go well your squamish river has been open for catch and release fishing bait ban, single barbles hook for mm-hmm. 20 years how many fish you're fishing over oh less than 1500 <laughs> has it has the catch and release fishery ever affected the the, the run absolutely not You know, the biggest mortality we have is there's a little bit of limited tribal netting.
0: Sure. The
2: biggest mortality we have of that is is seals and and it's continued. Now, we don't have quite the population next to it like the Skagit Sock, but we have, you know, 20% of the fish and it still gives people an opportunity. And I think that's a lot about what the Skagit people want. They just want to be able to go fishing, right? And so Squamish is getting a lot more people who just come up you know it's a very scenic beautiful river with high peaks and snow-capped mountains and all that <laughs> um, and there's a fairly good bull trout slash dolly varden um uh, population there um one of my favorite things in the spring is when the, the bull trout are chasing the salmon fry around nice you fi- you fish them on a riffle hitched muddler in the riffles and you see them boiling on fry so you're basically catching them on skated flies <laughs> and it, it's a great time you know and uh you know, you just got to make what you can of it. And then once in a blue moon, you you catch a bloody big steelhead in that same riffle. And, you know, that's an added bonus. Hmm. But it's, you know, it's not like it was of yesteryear. It, it faced a lot of environmental uh, damages from from bad logging yeah. many years ago. And it's still recovering. Mm-hmm. Uh, other lower mainland rivers in our neck of the woods, you know, uh, Vetter is very well-known, Vancouver River. Uh, heavy, heavily fished. Uh, a lot of conventional anglers there. Yeah. And then a lot of smaller rivers and then Vancouver Island, which is slowly, slowly bouncing back from, from the same problems, you know, environmental and, and, and habitat loss and, uh, but slowly bouncing back. And then now anglers I find have a much lower threshold of, of, uh, what it takes to go catch, you know, have a good day or, uh, and it's, it's sad because some of the people that really are pushing to get our fisheries back say to the younger angler, you don't know what we used to have. Yeah. You would fight hard if you know what we used to have. Hmm. So we need to get the young angler involved because it could be, it can be great again. It's kind of a funny saying to make in this political
1: theater <laughs> yeah, these exactly. days,
2: you know, makes <laughs> make steelhead great again. Yeah, But you can, right? The habitat's coming back. Uh, the fish are slowly coming back. You know, uh, your expectation for a day is much lowered. You know, if you catch one, you're super happy. Hmm. You know, uh, the old days, you know, the old duffers. Oh, I used to catch 20 a day. Well, yeah. we're well past that. We used right. to shoot 10 deer a year too, right? So we don't do that anymore. Yeah. So I, you see a lot of that. And so Vancouver Island, it's it's starting to come around. Hmm. Nice. Um, you know, we cross our fingers. You know, it's nice to see a lot of, you know, uh, really earnest young anglers getting after it again.
1: Yeah.
2: Kind of a rena- a bit of a renaissance, you know, of, of fly fishermen and, re- and, and catch and release renaissance. I mean more and more every year you're seeing guys out there flailing with their spare rods and fly rods than, than, than before.
0: Uh Yeah. There's still some new, some new bucks coming up through the, uh, through the ranks. And I mean, (laughs) (laughs) did you see the, uh, I mean, how do you see the industry? You know, you've been in it. How how many years have you been kind of in this, this? Uh,
2: well I'm 51 and I worked in a fly shop first when I was 16. Oh wow. Yeah. So, you know, and, and now, um, you know, I used to take the bus to the tackle shops, you know, in, in high school and, and, you know, so in and out of it, you know, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's 30 yeah. plus years, 30, 35 years. And, and sometimes I kind of look back and I go, damn,
1: <laughs> I, know. You
2: know, I just did a trade show, you know, uh, in, in the lower mainland here. And, and the comment, my, my comment on trade shows, it, it seems like apart from the selling and promoting is shaking hands and kissing babies you're like yep, a politician exactly you see all these old faces and many of them you now see with their kids that are growing up and you're just wow i remember you and you know just like people did us as youngsters right the old yep. duffer i remember you when you were two exactly. and and so i just finished doing that and i hadn't done the trade show circuit for a few years so kind of had to catch up and i just saw so many old people that are still love fishing and now they got their families their kids growing into it and the kids are buying gear and you know, that was pretty cool to see. So huh. it's, it. I'm, I'm happy that people are doing it, but it also reminds you that, man, I ain't getting any younger, you know, no, no, been at this for a while and that's it. So, you know,
0: people, yeah. Where do you get the, uh, you know, yeah, you've been doing this a long time. I and mean, where does, where does your passion come from to keep, keep you going strong?
2: Um, well, you know, I, when I catch a fish, I sure look at it a lot longer mm-hmm. than I used to,
0: you know, used to twist the hook out and
2: send it on its way. And now I mm-hmm. want to stare at it for five minutes, <laughs> pet, pet it on the head, Yeah, you know, just look at it and, and, you know, maybe it's kind of getting old and philosophical about it, but it, it, yeah, you, you kind of forget what, you know, what you have to appreciate. And so I find that now if I can just go out and get a nice day on the water and, if I catch a couple and and look at them and I can fish away, I want to fish and like to rather than having to fish away. I'm forced to, because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where the fisher, you know, that makes me feel better. And I don't need to have a full day. You know, now if I can get out for a morning, you know, I find that, that I can get what I need. Um, guiding, you know, you're watching somebody else fish all the time and, you know, I don't fish when I'm guiding. I don't fish behind clients. I'm, very hesitant to take a rod and fish apart from to show somebody how to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after, and sometimes guiding burns you out, you know, to get out on your own. You know, I really enjoy my trip. If I can get a tropical trip in now or something that, you know, for my own personal, but I still find that when I get you fish, you know, that one fish really can mean a lot more to me than the old days when you have four or five or six in a day. And you, you remember the first one and you remember the big one but oh. all the ones in between are lost on you. I know. And uh, that, you know, uh, God, I can't even believe I'm saying it because that's, but that's what I find now, you know, yeah. you know, and when you take pictures of fish, they're not bloody grip and grins. You know, I take a headshot, I take a photograph of its eyeball, I, <laughs> you know, maybe it has a spectacular tail uh-huh. or something cool, you know, that yeah. that becomes so much more important these days than,
1: yeah.
2: oh, you know, we're racking up numbers or, it's you know, that. got a big one.
0: That's yeah that, that that's kind of the more you think about it, the more you realize it is you know that old saying you know it's not about the fishing or whatever you know Oh. I it, it mean it, but it it is it's so much bigger and that's what's cool about you know this you know where we're at with fly fishing because there's such a there is that conservation kind of minded thing and and when yeah. you look when you look at it I think a lot of people talk about that because at the end of the day I mean that's what it's about right I mean we're all part of this movement to try to keep things going
1: it's not well, easy yeah.
2: Put it in perspective, you know, we don't have the Thompson River anymore. And that's where I kind of grew up fishing and and it's it's faced a lot of things. And this year it really it I mean, it's been facing problems for years, but this year it really came to head. And it's really organized people and it's really got people involved. And there's a lot of young guys that, you know, when it was open this year briefly, a lot of young guys are going up there to catch them and they get criticized by the old guys who think we should just leave them alone. They don't agree with opening it at all. And it's a catch twenty two. Those young guys grew up hearing about it they want to they want to experience it
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know so they go and then the old guys are like oh we can't we can't even fish afford to fish it and and now you're taking away opportunity and it's you know a friend of mine the other day suggested you know having a hookless fishery just give us a chance to go up <laughs> there and just hang out right Let, let's see if we can you know boil one or you can one can grab <laughs> your spoon without a hook on the end of it like just something yeah so that you're still up there smelling the sagebrush Watching the river, and yeah it's unfortunate. That's what it's come to. But when you close things, you people lose interest, and they might fight for it your first year or two. But at year five of a closure, people start to forget. Yeah. And,
0: and, and is it is it like uh, I'm not totally familiar? I mean, I know down here we've got a lot more trout. I know when when stuff gets rough, you can still fish for trout. Is that not yeah. an option up there? No, it, it it completely
2: closes when what what happened in the last bunch of years in the Thompson is they keep it open. It's open till November one. And then if there's fish around, ironically, the fish don't really show up until about October 20th. So if the fish are around, they'll they'll extend the opening. But if the fish aren't around, they close it no, down.
1: Completely. And
2: so really you're fishing it as the fish comes in. so sometimes there's a little window in the, you know, five, six days in late October where a bunch of fish get caught and then they close it. And then what's funny is the young guys, well, oh, I, I caught a whole bunch. Why are you closing it? <laughs> no, dude, you caught the six that were there, God, yeah. you know, that's what happens. And, and they close it down. And then, you know, when we fall back and we, we see what happened or the fish counts from the test fisheries come yeah. in and, you know, yeah. everybody gets their hair on fire because, you know, it's really sad, you know, and it's a very passionate, emotional issue for people. And, you know, the, the big thing that's come to light, well, it's always been interception of fisheries. That's always been the problem on the Thompson. Uh, a little bit of habitat stuff, or, or warmer water and predation stuff like that. But the the river still has good productivity to to generate the fish. It's just they're not they're not all making it out, and they're not all making it back. And so, you know, what has changed in the last decade? Well, there's been a lot more fishing in the lower Fraser approaches. A lot of it's Aboriginal. A lot of it actually is selective, but it's it's just more of it. And when you're only talking about runs of you know 1500 fish and they're trying to swim amongst millions of chum salmon or pink salmon it's death by a thousand cuts and you know now the now the new goat in the in the whole arena is you know uh the the aboriginal fishery and i'm hardly anti-aboriginal i have some aboriginal blood but our government, in an effort to create economic opportunities, has allowed these selective fisheries for dog salmon, for the row fishery. It's very wasteful. You know, mm-hmm. you catch a fish, you cut it open, you take the row out, south to Japan, the fish becomes fish meal. Mm. And But it's an economic, uh, economic opportunity, and the government's let it happen. And now you let it happen, it's hard to roll it back, particularly when it comes to Aboriginal opportunity. And, uh, you know, we've always... Petition for selective fisheries, sane fishing and fish wheels versus gillnet. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a real tough one. We just had the the Thompson just got listed on the Canadian. It's the Kosawik. It's basically a species at risk legislation. Yeah. So now it's basically, is the government going to declare them endangered? And if they do, then there's all kinds of teeth in the laws to stop fisheries that, that can affect them. But now you're getting into a political arena of Mm -hmm. aboriginal fisheries and government and commercial lobby groups and it's it's just such a hard battle but you know the steel hunters are pretty united you know we've got a lot of momentum this season so Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know cross cross your fingers
0: yeah yeah we're all yeah we're we're with you
1: yeah
0: so we're with you for sure yeah i was uh i had uh trey combs i interviewed him on episode six um Mm -hmm. and uh he was talking about a book he's working on on the thompson and, uh, oh, he, he okay. really got into detail on, you know, he's just digging in and he's trying to, you know, it was the same thing. It's kind of a sad story, you know, the picture, but, um, but you know, bottom line is, is where are you know, we're, where we're at now we gotta, we gotta work with what we have and, and all that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was also going to note that, um, <clears throat> any of these links I, that, you know, we're talking about today, I'll, I'll, make a note, um, in the show notes here at wetflyswing.com slash, 17, that'll be, uh, this episode will be number 17. So we'll get everything covered sure, here. Cool. So yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it can be a little doom and glooming, but, you know, I think yep. I, I see a microcosm of light at the end of the tunnel in the Thompson issue now. So let's just keep our fingers crossed and, and move forward. I mean, steelhead in general in BC have experienced the same problems they have in Washington, Oregon, California. You yeah. know, we've had a lot of North Pacific high sea survival issues, you know, and no matter how many people want to point fingers at everything from fish farming to bycatch, you know the science guys will all tell you well the north pacific has to improve right we've got to get right. more nutrients more water soon as ocean survival goes up all these damn fish show up it's amazing mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um so when you have the double whammy of of a low ocean survival rate and uh, and then you know bad habitat and bycatch yep. you know it, it's the triple whammy of, totally. of low you know low low returns so um yep. well, you know, yeah the consensus seems to be we're kind of on the upside of the we're on the rise now out of a real low point in the ocean. So hopefully that, you know, you know, in a year's time, we can have a different
0: conversation. That's right. That's right. Good. Um, yeah. So how about, uh, there's a couple of questions I always love to ask. Uh, we talked about flies at the, at the beginning, but <clears throat> maybe you can talk about a fly or two that, you know, when you go out for steelhead, you're going to throw on there. Typically say for uh, if you're fishing the summer fall.
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> my, the, the fly I catch the most fish on actually is uh, the bulk what we call the Bulkley special? It's basically it's a basically like a black and blue popsicle with a red head. Now, what's interesting about this fly is it's an egg sucking leech, yep. but it's not because it's it's differently than a good old you know wooly bugger with a with a chenille head. One of my favorite old classic Atlantic salmon flies is called a Bewley Snowfly, and there was just a year on the Thompson where a guy I know caught a fish on it. I remember it like it was yesterday. So we started fishing it. You know, it's kind of a black spay fly with some blue in the body and a and a peacock curl wing. If you if you look it up on like Google Images, there's lots of them. Okay. But it's but the original was tied with an orange pig's fur dubbed head. Huh. You throw that thing in the water, like I tie it as a classic on a low water hook. You throw that thing in the water and swim it. You look in the water, you go, God damn, son, that's an egg-sucking leech from 1875. Oh, yeah. You know, and and I, when I used to fish floating line, that was my favorite fly. And I fished that thing with, um, ironically, a, a bright orange head. I sometimes fished it with like a blue, dubbed blue head. It was just a color thing. You know, is it different than a green butt skunk or a red butt skunk? Right. You know, there's that touch of color. It's just at the opposite end. So years ago, going up to the Skeena, you know, more fishing flies was a, you know, a black rabbit style leech with a blue collar and then you know some dubbing around the eyes or a dubbing around the head depending on what you want the fly to do and the next thing you know you're adding some flash and if i look at a fly in my box it's got more fish in the last decade than anything else it's without a doubt that thing Yeah. from tied as a small low water version tied to a five inch special with lead eyes for, <laughs> you know but that connotation of a, of a fly. And that's coming from a guide point of view. What I know is going to catch a fish, yep. even in the winter, you know, in a winter time, black and blue catches tons of fish, it Does you know, for a long time, we we're all wrapped up around red and pink and orange. And, and, uh, but I, you know, I like to fish a dark fly in the winter. It's a, it's a great change up. And I noticed in a lot of wild fisheries, it it catches plenty of fish. It's mm-hmm. not a, it's the fish doesn't know, right? No. And and wild fish that have a, you know, have a couple of years of freshwater Uh, uh, in their life cycle you know how many bright pink things they ever see versus you know black and blue and dark and drabby right so so personally for me that fly works really well um there was uh about eight seven eight years ago i I started fishing a really bright blue fly Uh, we call them maurice uh or the blue meanie or the Maurice meanie. And it was basically a bright silver doctor blue mm-hmm. rabbit strip fly and uh, with or without a, uh, you know, a red head on it. And when I was up in the Skeena for the first few years, we fished this thing and it would be great to catch fish left and right. And I couldn't quite figure out why, you know, was it the blue? Was it the change up was it a different color. And then one year I was pulling my anchor out of the mud and I kicked up a couple of juvenile lampreys mm. that swam up to the surface and swam across the surface. And, uh, you know, I looked at them and I, what the heck are those things? And I kind of scooped them up in my hand and looked at them and they were juvenile eels, lamprey yep. eels, and they're gunmetal blue. Oh yeah. But I found a big full-size dead lamprey on the river one day, uh, about the same time as, um, I, we actually caught a hatchery steelhead in the Babine river and we turned the head in and it was hmm. a stray,
1: wow. but it
2: opened a conversation because I showed the guy, the picture on my phone of this, the steelhead at full size to show him that, yes, it was a clipped. Oh uh, looked just like every other bad bean steelhead, but it was clipped. (laughs) And so we whacked it and turned the head in to see if we could get a a tag, a tag out of it. And in my phone, I scrolled through and here's this giant lamprey that I took a picture of. And so the biologist looks at it and goes, Oh yeah, those things are everywhere. And then I talked about that instance and he goes, Oh, without a doubt, they form a basis of the, of the juvenile diet. And I was like, Oh, interesting. So I am really kind of matching the hatch with this (laughs) giant blue leech. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was just kind of an interesting side note to, you know, well, you know, that's why you eat this thing so well. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so the blue meanie has
2: been, you know, in the box for quite a few years. And, um, you know, and then in the summertime months when I was on the Dean, uh, you know, I fished the lower river a lot more. That's where I was guiding, you know, we're at BC West and, and the fly of choice was either a big pink thing or a big black thing, depending on the day. But the big pink thing was lights out. Huh. I, 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 uh, you know, we called them the, the Dean River uh, <laughs> Pink Dink, D-Y-K-E. Um, yeah. But they, they um, uh, or rather D, yeah, D-Y-N-K. Oh, and D-K. it just worked so well because they could see it, you know. And we'd throw that thing out there and it would, it's four inches long and it's coming through the current. And, and Dean fish were, were so aggressive. They would just hammer it. And the, the grab was something else. And we fished on tube flies with, you know, that was more popular because of the, the aggression of the fish. Uh, and, uh, and we caught a lot of fish on that. And as the years morphed on, that flies, you know, changed, but still, you know, just a giant pink thing. It was the only fly that Jerry Wintle, you know, ever had to have fish caught behind him on before he wanted one. <laughs> I remember him <laughs> taking one of my box and he goes, "Look, give me one of those things, but you cut all that Christmassy stuff off of it because I had a bunch of flashaboo.
0: Yeah.
2: Clipped it all off. And then Jerry went back to the top of the run and he's trying to throw it on a nine foot, bamboo rod and this thing's oh, like geez. a babington birdie and he throws it out in the run and it goes about a foot and he gets a big eat and he snickers and he sets the hook and he lands the fish and after three fish he took it off and gave it back no to way he said, that's because that's no fair
0: that's awesome you i laughed <laughs> cool so i
2: mean not not a super you know not a super diverse bunch of flies in my box oh these yeah days, but that's good. um but that, you know that's if i'm tying flies up to the river i that's sort of what i I have is that black, blue, red headed thing. And then I'll have some, you know, popsicle type of fly tied on a tube hook, yep. tied on a tube. I was a big fan of the intruder style, you know, trailing hook for a while. Mm-hmm. I've kind of gone away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I see way too many. One of my big rants is way too many trailer hooks are way too long. Yeah, You know, the whole trailer philosophy is lost on people about why is that hook on a trailer? It's on there to have a small hook that hooks the fish easily easy to take out, exactly. doesn't damage fish. It doesn't need to hang behind your your hook shank any longer than it is to change the hook out. And I see commercial flies. I see people's flies. And like, like, why is your trailer so long? It
0: doesn't need to be and, that and long. how and, long. And how long are you seeing these things? Like how far behind the the Oh, an inch
2: behind the marrow. Actually behind,
0: really, like behind yeah, the actual, past, the end of the past, material?
2: Yeah, yeah, past the end of the material. Wow. Yeah.
0: So the actual loop
2: is twice as long as it needs to be to change the hook. Yeah. And so I I just don't think, why are you doing it? There's no no reason. I mean,
0: that's the whole thing because you could go with the, I know when I was up in BC the first time we were, you know, we had these uh, 3 aught some of the Monster, and these were classics. Some of the locals up there, we were picking them up from them (laughs) and we were using these big, and they, you know, they work great, but that was the whole thing, right? It was this big hook that wasn't the best hook to use. Um, but you're saying now now some of these guys with the intruders are doing kind of the same thing. They
2: just, they just missed the point.
0: You know, when the first
2: intruder article came out in, uh, wild trout and salmon thing, right? That was the first published account of the intruder, Tom Perro's mag at the time. And he had a picture of a big Edward intruder rigged the original way, the way that he and Jerry French figured it out. And they had it rigged up through the eye. The leader goes over the back through a little loop of motto and a piece of tubing. And then they, you know, they would tie it to the hook and they'd snug that hook right up to the back of the hook shank. And there's a reason for it. You know, Mm -hmm. they wanted a small hook. They were modifying these hooks so that they were like, almost like a circle hook. So they wouldn't hook fish in the throat. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: They'd ride them hook point up. So they wouldn't drag in the rocks.
1: Mm -hmm. There was a
2: lot of thought to that fly and everybody I'm, you know, being general, but everybody missed that. All they saw was this big double hackled bug Mm -hmm. and And then later, because that rigging is a little tricky, right, guys started going to the loop system with a loop of of mono or a Mm -hmm. loop of braid line or whatever. And then hook shanks got shorter because people realized that, you know, a simple single station intruder type fly with a trailing hook catches 95% of the same fish, right? The whole idea was a, a big fly in the water, but when you pulled it out of the water, there was no water absorption in the material. So the fly would come out of the water cleanly and it would cast nice. But when it landed in the water, it had a big profile. That, mm-hmm. that was the whole concept. Yep. And and that's gotten lost on people. And now mm-hmm. it's it's you see bodies, the flies are way too much stuff on there. It's like a sponge, and these long trailers. And the and the fish that I've seen mortally wounded have been hooked in the throat on these long trailers. And so that of course had me aghast. And I started to, okay, we got to move away from this. Like, why are people doing this? And and uh, I know, I remember I wrote an article for Fly Fusion magazine and I really went on it about that and the editors edited it out to huh. get it down to the, to, to make the word count
1: <laughs> <Really>? <laughs>
2: because they didn't, they didn't understand what I was talking about. I mean, they showed it in the illustrations, but it got a bit edited out just to, to make the article fit the, the magazine. And I was a bit bummed because that was a, a key point and, uh, that people missed that. And so that's sort of been my rant the last few years when somebody, you know, shows me a beautiful box of flies. I'm like, what's with the long trailer,
1: Yeah, even
2: commercially bought flies. Um, you know, uh, I will, I'll take the trailing loop material and if the fly is tied on like a Waddington shank, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can thread that loop through the back eye on the Waddington a couple of times to shorten it up. Oh, okay. Uh, if you're going to have a long trailer, it, it should be a stiff material. A lot of guys like wire.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't
2: like wire cause you can't cut it. Yeah. You know, what if the fish is hooked deep? How are you going to get your pliers in there and cut wire? Yeah. You know, uh, my favorite, I still use braid. I use a fused braid when I do use it. And, uh, and I have a pair of scissor forceps that can go deep and can cut, like, cause they're serrated
1: mm-hmm.
2: to, you know, you got to think that way and, and oh, yeah. guys don't, you know, and I see these flies with like, you know, intruder wire, you know, way long. And then I see a fish with it down the pipe and you're trying to, you, you got to cut it. You don't get the hook out, yep. you know, and it just, it seems, it's just a trend that I think started with the right idea, but mm-hmm. went way off the tracks, you know, yeah. and I, uh, uh, it's good to see companies are shortening them, you know, but it's still, I think it's still a problem. And so I've basically gone to a tube fly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I like the works. Works good. I like the, simple. you know, those, those are awesome. Uh, those are awesome tips and points you made there. And yeah, I, I love the tube fly too. Cause you can, you can easily, you know, add or take off and cinch up that hook real tight up to your, you know, your fly and adjust it. Oh, yeah. And it's just super easy. Oh However, yeah. And if you
2: want, if you want a big fly stack, three tubes,
0: yeah. you know, two tubes. Yeah. We
2: did that for years. We we're stacking tubes. Um, you, I used to put bobber stops in my box and I would, uh-huh. I would put a bobber stop between the tubes and then I could space them out another inch. And, um, uh, and you have a big fly with a small hook. Yep. You know, you want a small fly, you take one off, you
0: want exactly. to change colors.
2: You can slide a weight down, has, you know, tie all your lead eyes on a, a piece of tubing and just slide them into spots. And you can get pretty creative. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it uh, touched on it. April a couple of years ago, you know, had her stacker tube system that, you know, got a little bit of publicity and it just, it should have caught on more because she yeah. was using a guide trick that you know was really successful for guiding because it allows you to really change on the fly. But it's, it's just, it's less as the glamorous fly in a box. A bunch of stacker tubes in your box don't look like anything until you build something out of it. Right. So yeah. I remember people seeing them all going, Oh, what's all this stuff? And you're like, well, Here's what we do. And, um, Tom Larimer, you know, we were stacking mm-hmm. tubes, Nadine, you know, 10 years ago. So, mm. um, Anyway, um, that's not, you know, it's just something that's yeah. kind of missing on the out there. and no, needs more good. publicity because it works good.
0: It's good. I, uh, yeah, we all. I seem to always come up to the end. We're, we're definitely pushing uh, the limits here on our time here. I want to make sure yeah. to respect your time, but uh, yeah, no, this has been awesome. Uh, just had a, a couple more here, and I'll and I'll let you good. get going here. Um, so I, I always love to hear, I think you've definitely mentioned a, a bunch of mentors. Is, is there an, um, any mentors or anybody we've left off that you haven't talked about that maybe have influenced you and helped you to get where you are?
1: Um,
2: well, environmentally I was a Hague Brown kid. Mm. I, I read a lot of Roderick Hig Brown's books. It, it, I think he made me think about the fish when I, at a young age, it was kind of what every Christmas or birthday from all through my teens, you know, my mom would go find a Hig Brown book for me. And um, you know, a little, a little history, my great grandfather on, on my dad's side was one of the first guys to fish steelhead dry flies in the Capilano river. And when I caught onto that yeah, and, and, you know, and reading Hig Brown and, and what they were doing and, and how they viewed the environment a lot differently, that had a, a big influence. And, uh, to this day, I mean, I got a stack of them and you go reread those things as an older person who's seen a lot of change mm-hmm. and you see what that man talked about in the sixties about fear, like of, you know, what we're doing, where are we going on this path we're headed on? And this was, you know, 50 years ago, you know, he was a pretty, a, a pretty, uh, mm-hmm. sage, sure. you know, what's the word for it? You know, he, yeah, he had, a, of a, time. A, yeah, he had a, a good vision of where we are going to go, um, as an individuals, you know, fishing individuals, you know, I think my dad, uh, Mike was always a big influence cause he took me fishing as a kid. You know, and, and he came and got me every summer and dragged Mm -hmm. me off and took me fishing. And, and, and I think that was pretty important, not for technique, but for taking you fishing, you know, taking, take kids fishing, you know, if you don't, if they're going to love it or not. You know, and everybody knows guys with a couple of kids and the one kid really took to it and the other kid didn't. That's right. Like, you're not going to force feed them fishing. But the fact that my dad took me fishing and my grandfather took me fishing, I think they were, they were big role models. And, and, um, you know, now, you know, getting older, I would, you know, voraciously eat books. (laughs) Now the internet's changed all that. I'm still, you know, a big reader, but I find myself reading my phone or my iPad, but read books, you know, that kind of information. I think too many people now want instant gratification. They don't want to do the research and, uh, and learn on their own. And that's the problem, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, you know, books were a big influence. I think that's, uh, you know, I'm just old enough to have not had as much influence from the YouTube and, you know, social media side of things. Yeah, So, you know, anybody that, you know, wants to go, God, go read books. There's so many great books out there. You know, it's in, you know, it's just hard to get people to pick them up and read them. Yeah, you know, everybody seems to be so impatient, right?
0: Yeah, times are yeah times have changed, but yeah, books are definitely not not going away anytime soon. Yeah. so cool. So yeah, the only last thing you mentioned there with the dry flies, I was hoping to just get a quick uh, question on dry flies and popping. Do you, you've done a, mm-hmm. quite a bit of that. Do, can you maybe do yeah. a quick yeah. little <laughs> short
1: yeah. breakdown on that? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, you know, popping dry flies. I mean, the way it was the umqua style you know that got a lot of popularity with scott howell and that um i've had people fish that way that when i first saw it i was like whoa dude what are you doing you know and i've seen fish just react to it just like in the video like so just come out of nowhere and crush it um but twitching flies twitching dries up in the skeena mike maxwell uh long you know, long passed away now but he was kind of the two the two-handed rod pioneer up in bc he kind of brought over from england mm-hmm. his whole approach on the bulkley was a dead drifted and twitched stonefly that's how he fit mm. and um andre um uh, andre what's his name and and shadrack the, the kind of two guy guide outfitters that were andre laporte oh. and colin shadrack who were kind of the guys that came up with the bulkley mouse
1: mm-hmm. you know
2: um and that's arguable who did it, but they were the guys who were using it, you know, which was a, a hitched and skated fly, much like we've done in the South everywhere else,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, did it differently, but Maxwell was twitching and dead drifting flies for quite a few years. And, but his, uh, his idea was the fly would drift for a foot or two and then you twitch it and then it would drift kind of the way you pop a hopper. Mm. And I've done that more successfully. I've thrown a fly out. Man, it starts to skate a little bit. Give it a little twitch, and then it dead drifts for a foot, and that starts to skate again. Right. That's style. And I've had very really good success with it. Um, I've, but I've watched lots of clients twitch a little bit more um, uh, aggressively and had mm-hmm. success with it.
0: So, I mean, they, I think they all work. Cool. And you're you know, fishing I, kind I, of some of the shallower water when you're trying to do this, or yeah. you just have things dialed well, in? Well,
2: well, the one thing I noticed about twitching is if you, you skate through a spot, where I really see twitching make a difference is, is in deeper water hmm. where you're drifting off a riffle and he comes into a kind of the pool and, and you kind of drop off. Maybe the water's four feet deep, three, four, five feet deep. And I've seen guys twitch fish and I've seen the fish coming off the bottom. Um, hmm. I think in shallower water less so, cause I think fish in shallower water are already a bit more aggressive. Oh yeah. Uh, when I got on the Maurice for a lot of years, you know, we, I could spot and, and fish to a lot of fish because uh, it's a very clear river, and watch how they behave to a fly. And um, so, I, you know, yeah, I noticed the twitch fly worked better when the water was a bit deeper. At least that's where I saw success um, versus, you know, more of the the two to three-foot walking speed sort of standard water that, you know, the, uh, that people would look for. Um, but, you know, the last couple of years I was on the Babine, you know, good dry fly river, and aggressively twitch flies you know, account for fish there, but for whatever reason, just maybe it was the guests I had. You know, we just fished more traditional, mm-hmm. and of course that you know that worked well too. Um, So mm-hmm. I, I think you know my approach is fish both ways. You know, skate skate the run or mm-hmm. skate your drift, and if that looks too good, throw it in there again, give it a twitch. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 then take a couple steps. You know, skate it, twitch it, just sure. mix it up, mix it up. You yep. know, and and see what happens. I've never seen one outfish the other, but I've certainly seen the twitched fly come behind the skated fly and have success okay um i think it maybe just triggers that next that next, next reaction next you know
0: cool yeah cool. kind of like a hopper
2: you know you twitch a hopper and it makes all the difference right so yeah i think i think you're just triggering something there
0: yeah definitely nice good deal all right well uh what do you have going anything uh, next six months i guess you uh you mentioned you've got you're finishing up some shows and things like that yeah well now uh now in the rep
2: game we're we're on to uh spring season, you know, spay claves and uh, demo days at stores and and getting out, you know, uh, you know, with the public. Uh that's will be my my goal. Our, our Sims, we just wrapped up our fall, fall twenty eighteen Sims sort of showing and selling for retailers. And mm-hmm. so now uh it's kind of the promotional part of the season for the next few months until uh May when the, the cycle kind of repeats itself and uh hopefully I get down to tarpon land in may i got a, cool. a, a stick in the fire that i look really look forward to that uh-huh. and then um that'll be that and then it'll be you know trout season and uh come you know next thing you know it'll be september and be up on the ski now yeah. you know i <laughs> yeah. now i go up, i gotta go up there to you know to work but i'm still going to uh you know, spend a time at the lodge it was running and, and get the guy the new guys all opened and squared away and then actually I get to go fishing. Cool, which will be fun. Yeah, look forward to that. That's awesome. It'll be their worst nightmare. Next guide with a jet boat on the ski. Now.
0: There you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, Sounds like a plan. Good stuff. So, uh, so yeah, if uh, people want to find you, uh, as we mentioned at the start, they can go to uh, Instagram and just search for uh, what was it? U- Uliwan. Uliwan. U L I w-o-n all right on Instagram perfect yeah. um, good deal Scott well I appreciate you coming on and uh, dropping some some serious knowledge bombs I mean this was like you know especially it seems like you, you just kind of get going and it just comes out <laughs> yeah know. I can't shut up <laughs>
2: that's a problem I have No, it but
0: was... anytime no, anytime it's a good time cool, cool. we'll I'll have to check back with you because I know there's a ton of questions I could uh, could still ask you but I appreciate you coming on and uh, hope to uh, see you soon okay Dave thanks very much all right thanks so there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we cover, just go to wetflyswing.com 17. That's the numbers, one, seven. Please go to wetflyswing.com community to connect with the growing Facebook group at Fly Fisher Society. We are continuing the conversation at the Society, so stop in and say hi. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hopefully seeing you on the river.